Welcome back, dreamers, for another serving of the Dole Whip and Dreams podcast. As always, I'm your host, Maddie Limerick, and this week, our guest Tristan Bailey and I take a deep dive into the heart of Africa with one of the crown jewels of Disney animation, The Lion King. The Lion King is the fifth movie in the illustrious time known as the Disney Renaissance, which I've covered in our Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Rescuers Done Under, and Tarzan episodes, so check those out for more information. The 1994 release would set in motion the largest box office returns the company had ever seen. But where did it begin? Oddly enough, on a plane in 1988 with the deep enemy of the pod, Jeffrey Katzenberg. During a flight to Europe to promote the release of Oliver and Company, don't worry dreamers, that episode's coming in season two, Roy E. Disney, Katzenberg, and Peter Schneider would begin discussing an adventure film set in Africa focusing on death and a coming-of-age story. The idea was then developed by Vice President of Creative Affairs, Charlie Fink. While this movie obviously has nods to Hamlet, and according to the creative team, also the Old Testament, The Lion King would be the first Disney film to feature a completely original story. The team was cycling through many ideas for the movie, which led to many names. Also, with plot points like Scar being a baboon and leading a baboon rebellion against the lions, Rafiki being a cheetah, and Timon and Pumbaa being Simba's childhood friends, and most shockingly, Simba becoming a lazy, slovenly, horrible character due to the manipulation of Scar. I'm honestly really glad that this was not the movie we ultimately got. Oliver and Company's director, George Scribner, was originally attached to direct the film, but Scribner wanted to make it more of a documentary-style film, and after he was replaced by Rescuers Down Under director Thomas Schumacher, with some conflicts over the movie coming become musical, I, I, they don't really go into it. We would also see the addition of producer Don Hahn, who saw the potential but felt the film lacked a focused script or clear theme. Roger Allers, fresh off of Beauty and the Beast, along with Brenda Chapman, would become the heads of story. The creative team would spend six months in Hell's Gates National Park in Kenya to study the environment and atmosphere and how animals moved. Ultimately, the original ideas for the film were left behind to focus on the main themes of leaving childhood behind and facing up to the realities of the world. This would lead to Kurt Wise and Gary Trousdale joining Chapman, Allers, Minkoff, and Han to rewrite the story over a period of just two weeks. This was the point when Scar and Mufasa became brothers and we found the iconic film title, The Lion King. In 1992, just two years before its cinematic release, Irene Mechie and Jonathan Roberts would join as screenwriters where they helped fix a lot of the unresolved emotional issues in the script, as well as add the iconically comical showdown between Timon, Pumbaa, and the hyenas. But because of constant rewrites, composer Tim Rice would really continually visit the writer's room pretty much monthly to make sure that all of his lyrics still worked within the film. He pushed Disney to bring on Elton John to pin the music. Now, Elton John is credited by saying that he took inspiration from The Jungle Book, and uh, there was a lot of conflicts between him and Katzenberg, uh, including one that I found the most interesting, which is... <laughs> They were originally going to cut Can You Feel the Love Tonight from the film, and he battled with Jeffrey Katzenberg, and he actually won having it left in the film. During all of this, another larger project was in development and production at Disney that would have most of the creatives clamoring to work, leaving Lion King as the undesired project. Pocahontas held most of the studio's animators and creative voices. In fact, Brenda Chapman didn't want to work on The Lion King because she felt the story just wasn't good. And writer Bernie Matson was cited saying, I don't know who's going to want to watch that. 
Yeah, you heard that right. More people wanted to work on Pocahontas than The Lion King. In fact, the cast changed happening several times, including with Tommy Chong leaving, which would lead to the casting of Whoopi Goldberg, and Jeremy Irons losing his voice during recording of Be Prepared. Uh, so he was replaced by Jim Cummings to finish the recording of the song, and I believe you can tell like, that exact moment. All of these things, it's surprising to me that this movie even opened. Animators were also having to cons constantly change finished scenes to match the ever-changing script. And in fact, animators were still working on this until about a week before the release when an earthquake wiped out this studio and they had to require to work from home. When the now iconic trailer dropped in theaters, only about a third of the movie was completed. And the movie required over 11 test screenings before it was released to be prepared for international audiences. I feel like I can't move on without talking about the technological marvel that is one of the movie's most impressive and soul-crushing scenes, the Wildebeest Stampede. Five specially trained animators and technicians worked for over two years on this single scene. The CAPS system developed by Pixar helped simulate camera movement, such as using tracking shots, and they employed coloring, lighting, and particle effects to kind of build the entire scene. This scene had several distinct wildebeest characters that were created in a 3D computer program. They were multiplied by the hundreds, they were cel-shaded to look like they were drawn animation, and they were givenized random paths down the mountainside to simulate the real, unpredicted movement of a herd something that just couldn't have been done with classic hand-drawn animation and leads to one of the most successful storytelling moments in animated films. But on June 15th, 1994, the audiences at home were invited to find their place in the circle of life and The Lion King took the world by storm. With an initial budget of just 45 million, the film would gross 968.5 million worldwide between its initial release in 1994 and the 2011 3D re-release. It finished its initial run as the highest grossing movie of the year, the highest grossing animated film of all time, and the second highest grossing film of all time behind Jurassic Park. It's currently the 46th highest grossing film of all time and the 11th highest grossing animated film at the time of this recording. In addition, the franchise brought in over 1 billion in merchandise sales in a single year. $1 billion in 1994. And it is known for selling over 30 million VHS units and 17 million DVD Blu-ray units since 1994. Beyond being a financial success, it was a critical and fan favorite as well, and it holds the distinction of being the only Disney film translated and released in the South African language of Zulu, which is the only African language that has ever been used by Disney. According to Rotten Tomatoes, it's currently at a 93% based on 128 critic reviews, and in 2016, it was officially added to the Library of Congress. But before we move on, I know what you're thinking. Maddie. What about Kimba? You cannot not talk about the controversy with Kimba. Well, don't worry, because here we go. In the 1950s, there was a Japanese manga called Jungle Emperor Leo by Asuma Tezuka, which was adapted into an anime entitled Kimba the White Lion and aired internationally in 1966. 
Of course, when The Lion King was released, people would quickly bring up accusations that Disney was directly inspired by Kimba, and they wanted them to publicly admit that they were inspired by an anime. Disney, of course, to this day, still denies any inspiration from the Japanese property. In fact, when Matthew Broderick signed on to voice older Simba, he was confused to be playing Simba because he had such wonderful childhood love for the character of Kimba. Minkoff claims that he and Allers had no idea that this property even existed until they toured Japan to promote The Lion King in 1994 and 1995. Though Tom Sito, who was the head of animation, admitted later that near the end of production, the production crew learned about Kimba's story and they were amused by the similarities. Now, what are those similarities, you might be asking? Well, in both properties, there's a powerful image of a lion atop of a similar Pride Rock structure, though I believe in Kemba it is not called Pride Rock. The characters' names are obviously very similar, and the protagonists both lose a parent in the first half of their story, where they would later communicate with them in a starry sky. Baboons, hyenas, and birds all had similar characteristics in both, and the enemy is an orange-furred, black-maned lion, which, you know, is a lot. But for me, the differences are very different. In Kimba, the animals are kind of anthropomorphic. When there is conflict, they fight on two legs and they fist fight like humans. Now, in Lion King, there's also no human characters where there are many in Kimba and they tend to be a key part of the plot. Now, dreamers, I will let you think what you will, but I will end with a quote from the 1994 president of Tezuka's production company. Quite a few staff of our company saw a preview of The Lion King and discussed this subject and came to the conclusion that you cannot avoid having similarities as long as you use animals as characters and try to draw images out of them. Now, we'll be right back after this. Did you know Rob Thomas has been writing since the mid-90s? The Matchbox 20 guy? No, the guy behind Veronica Mars. Oh, and iZombie. And Cupid, Party Down, the Cupid reboot. I haven't seen those. Me neither, but we should watch them and then talk about them on our podcast. Yes, we could call it the Rob Thomas. No, not that one. Robcast. Every other Tuesday with Alex and MJ. Find us at notthatrobcast.libsyn.com or wherever you download podcasts. Welcome back, dreamers. Today, I've got Tristan Bailey with me. Tristan, welcome to the show. Hello. It is so good to be here. We made it. We did it. We did it. I'm so excited. So a little story for everybody. Uh, Tristan and I worked on a project a very long time ago together, tangentially, when I still lived in New York. And so we've been social media friends since then. And Tristan has been one of the biggest, like, voices on social media for Dole Whip and Dreams and he was like yo I would die to do Lion King and so I, I like popped into his DMs and said yo you're doing Lion King <laughs> like two weeks ago and so we are here now I'm so excited um, and so why don't you tell everyone at home a little bit about yourself and what role Disney has played in your life whoa okay uh, hello everyone so yeah I work in New York, uh, as like a culture, diversity, and inclusion communication person. Um, but I'm mostly defined by my millions of side projects, um, includes writing plays, um, working on a teen fantasy novel, um, and generally just kind of love to create. Um, as far as my relationship with Disney, um, and my 
related love of Disney. Uh, so, I mean, I, I thought about this a bit and I was, you know, raised, uh, like we didn't, we didn't have a lot. Um, let's put it that way. And, you know, even as like a black gay kid, um, looking at these characters kind of just like having the general freedom to, to just like find that joy and like reach those dreams um and just like sing and have fun um it was like not that you know like when you're poor you don't really realize how poor you are especially as a kid Mm -hmm. um but it's still a part of the culture like it's still pervasive in the society itself like you have you know people because you have to work really hard and do a lot just to get food on the table that you really just like it's not a part of the culture to have time for you know magic um And Disney, for me, was kind of just, like, that window into the possibility of magic. Um, Mm -hmm. And and that's really where, you know, my kind of journey with it began and and continues to be. I love that. That's really really sweet. But also, I think what a lot of... I think in the 90s and what a lot of people are still going through now is it is a... um, it's a departure. It's a, it's a distraction. It's a, it's a, it's another place to be kind of another place to live in when the, our given situation isn't always as magical as the stories, you know, tend, tend to take us. Um, and so Lion King, you pitched me Lion King. I've been mulling around doing Lion King in the first (laughs) season. Um, you know, I think we're about the same age. And so Lion King was, Huge! I remember going to see it in theaters. I remember going, whoa, this is really cool. Just the visuals and the finely crafted trailer. I like it's significantly the the first movie trailer I remember. Like that lives in my brain to this day. So what what is your what is your background with The Lion King? And and tell us a little bit about why why you threw this on the, the table for us. Yeah. So, I mean, Lion King is absolutely my favorite disney movie and probably my favorite movie um you know just like you said like that initial trailer like that song that moment uh the the momentum the percussion was just you know it it really transported you um i think that for me like i kind of grew up watching discovery channel um Mm -hmm. like i grew up just like watching the cheetahs taking down the gazelles and just like again like to to echo what i said before about like disney offering this sort of like escape um i think just like the freedom of the animals just like living their lives like roaming um in the serengeti had a similar feel and so lion king for me was just like those two uh sort of passions combining in this one beautifully created place um i you know just really loved, even though I was too young at the time to really understand the concepts of it, um, I just thought it was so cool to have this work of art, this piece of creativity that, you know, my parents took me to and I was able to see and enjoy, but also it was sort of like my primer to the ideas of life and death and success and failure. Um, And though I'd be able to put words to it later, like, I, I, I think really, like, the power in finding all of these like themes that I thought were bigger than me in a way that I could in my small mind enjoy um really meant a lot that's awesome well that's awesome well and you know this is oh it is a 
a well-beloved film and for a very long time was Disney's top grossing film. It was the top grossing animated film in the world. Um, literally until 2013, it was the top grossing animated or 2010 was the top grossing animated film of all time. Um, and so, you know, it is, I would argue to say, and I'm going to go out there and say it, I think it is the most well-beloved Disney animated feature of all time. Yeah. Um, why, what about this Hamlet in the Serengeti is... <laughs> yes, Bamblin's. Yeah, is, how is it, <laughs> how is it, how, how is it that this movie peaked the Disney renaissance, but also has, what about this movie do you think it endures with people? Sure. Well, I mean, again, like, I think it's the larger-than-life concepts of life and death. You know, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of Disney movies, um, you know, most movies in general, you know, you sort of, like, you have these characters and you kind of just stick to that protagonist. Like, you're seeing a world through their eyes in a lot of ways. Um, Mm -hmm. It's very close it's very tight to them the the narrative structure is just like focused on this small handful of characters and you kind of go through it something happens to them good or bad and it's over and granted we've got that with this you know amazing set of characters in this film but it's made clear from the very beginning through sort of like that omniscient narrator that is Mufasa Mm -hmm. that all of this all of these moments are just a small piece of something larger that we are all working towards. And no matter if you run from it or stick with it, you are a part of. Um, I I think that's definitely a piece of it. Um, Another bit of it, uh, I think, is... I believe it was the first director, George Scribner, um, who originally saw the movie as, you know, this great, uh, like, animated nature film like yeah no music hyper realistic um which you know super glad a lot of that didn't work out but one thing yes. that i think he was very passionate about that stuck was that he wanted it to feel like it is grounded in the grandeur of the real world like there's something to be yeah. said for disney magic but there's also something to be said for like the magic of the african plains and i think yeah. that you know a lot of those like transition scenes really like took you there like it's like you're not sort of looking at characters you are living inside of the world with these characters and i think that's where you know a a large portion of that that connection comes yeah because even the idea of like there's not real other i mean just the grandness of it there's no real magic unlike most you know most disney of the disney animated uh of the renaissance there is a magical component to all of them until we get to Tarzan, really. Um, there's some right. sort of... And even the mysticism that is in this with Rafiki and the idea of Mufasa coming to Aladdin. Or, um, oh, my God, Simba. Holy crap. Um, <laughs> that would have been a very different movie. Um, the, the Disney Renaissance team-up pre-Avengers. Could you imagine? Um, but uh, it, uh, yeah, it's still grounded in something that we all recognize of seeing something in the stars and a cloud, hearing a voice from from someone that means something to you. Um, this idea that it is still grounded, grounded in reality and kind of the beauty of what makes nature beautiful. And also yeah. to me, it also calls back a lot of the why Walt did nature films 
early on in Disney's history, and Disney continues to go back to those, um, is that idea of, of um, you know, one, everyone loves a talking animal, two, right. you know, but it's, but it's this idea that there's this grandness and this other kingdom that is the animal kingdom um, and how it operates and it has its own set of rules and beauty and morbidity. Um, but, you know, other than like Bambi and maybe Fox and the Hound, this is one of the ones that like really makes you approach the idea of the death um, of someone close to you or a parental unit face on. And then also goes a step further and being like, oh, maybe this is your fault. Like we'll yeah. we'll get we'll get to Scar as a gay icon of the twentieth century later, because <laughs> um, we will get there. But yeah, this idea of this journey that we all need to take, I think, is so universal, and why it's so appealing, and apparently why they needed to remake this movie. I we're not going to talk about that movie, but no, it's, it's mean... bound to get brought up because it. <laughs> Yeah, you can't see me at home, but I'm like gay neck wagging right now in 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 the camera because I have a lot of feelings as someone that just finally watched it recently. But this one is where we're talking about the original. Um, And again, it's uh, uh, it's beautiful. And it's one of those that like while it was still hand drawn, they had they used a lot of computer animation for some of the larger scenes and like the wildebeest stampede specifically. And you just could not have gotten that before. But there's just so much. The score is right. The The animation is right. The story is right. Um, and I think it all came together in this kind of beautiful thing, uh, especially considering Elton John isn't known for doing scores. The fact that he right. came and did this one. Um, again, I would argue it's argue it's probably the most iconic Disney score. Um one of them at least, but I would say for me, it's probably like the Lion King songs. Come on. It's a bop. Everybody wants to sing them. Um, and you know, there's a reason they made it a musical like there it's, which is its own beautiful, beautiful being, um, in how I guess we have always told stories and this is at its base. One of beautiful old ways of telling stories is how we told the story. Yeah, Definitely. Um, and we've gotten several spinoffs, you know, it's, it's, so it's one that it has never left the lexicon. It has never left the Disney pantheon, like nothing. It, you can watch the musical every day on Broadway. You can watch it across the world. You can go see Festival of Lion King at Walt Disney World. There's a Lion King show at Disneyland. There's a Lion King show <laughs> at Disneyland Paris. Like, di- like Disney... I think everything that led up to The Lion King was necessary for The Lion King to succeed, especially knowing that it started production during Oliver and Company um, as as early back as 88, um, you know, which most Disney movies do. It takes a while to get them off the ground. Um, uh, and I, I think I warned you that I would ask you this question. A lot of yeah. people I found on the Internet said Simba <laughs> was their first crush. Was Simba, Tristan, your first crush? <laughs> Simba was, no, Simba was not my first crush. And I think, you know, like, yeah, I, I think I was, yeah, I mean, I was, I was still pretty young, but I think I was old enough even for Aladdin to, like, crush on Aladdin a little bit. But, like, something about, yes. something about, them being full animals kind of just turned me off. Like, I think, like, for example, 
Like, I definitely was, like, crushing hard on Gargoyles, Detective Elisa Maza, and Gargoyles, Lexington, and Brooklyn, and Gadget from uh, Rescue Rangers. I was totally crushing on, like, Max from Groove Troop. But, like, something about them being, like, naked, roared animals on four legs just didn't do it for me. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I I mean, I always go back to, like, that I went, I want to marry Robin Hood when I was a small child and didn't realize, you know, but the, but I, you know, I blame, I do blame Lion King for uh, several generations of furries that would come after. Um, but, <laughs> but, yeah, no, this movie is... Oh, it's just so good. And, you know, so I want to talk about, like, the script-wise, if we want to, you know, bring it from the bottom. And it, it, they did yeah. bring elements of Hamlet. They brought elements of biblical stories of large scale, like Joseph and Moses. Um, I, I don't really see Moses so much, other than Simba is the savior at the end um, of the people. You see a lot of, like, for anyone that knows the biblical story of Joseph, you do see those kind of Old yeah. Testament yeah. elements. You see, I see a lot of Hamlet in here. Um uh, though Sarabi is a much more likable character than Gertrude, I find. <laughs> um, and there's never a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern as as good as Timon and Pumbaa. Right. Um, but yeah, what a what? <sighs> Normally, with a Disney movie, there are moments where I go, "Ooh, this script element doesn't work for me," or "This script ele- element doesn't work for me." But this is a rare example where everything feels fine tuned. And it feels like it has a purpose. I was rewatching this probably two times since we talked about it. And I always think I find a moment where I go, mm, this storytelling moment doesn't work. <laughs> or that storytelling moment doesn't work. But honestly, I'm not sure I found one in Lion King. Uh, what, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, no, I, I would agree. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this and then leave this here. But this is, you know, uh, a quick remark to something you said before. I think script wise i think it's super tight i love it i think that of let's call them the big four of the renaissance i think that lion king and this is this is my favorite movie of all time i actually think lion king has the worst of the music of the four really yeah okay yeah i really really do and i love the music obviously i just think that there's like this uh this level of like heart and soul and yearning that like Ashman and others brought to these songs that just don't exist in sort of like this, I don't want to say vague, but in some ways, like the songs aren't as grounded as the movie in a lot of ways in the Lion King. Uh, you know, to what? Me. I, I will give you that. I'll give you that a thousand percent. Yes. And yeah. especially cause you have Alan Menken, and uh, Howard Ashman until he passed, and then um, Tim Rice, who did work with, um, uh, uh, oh my God, Alan Menken to finish Aladdin. Yeah. Um, but these, you know, between um, Beauty and the Beast and I guess Little Mermaid, Aladdin, and Lion King, if we're talking about, because they're, you know, they're the big four, they're the first four, you know, they're, it, they went in a different path starting after Lion King, because we, we then went into the, the post Katzenberg era. This is the last one of the last films that this is the last film that was released while Jeffrey Katzenberg was working for Disney. He left in 94. This was released in 94. Um, you know, um, and for good or bad, he did do a lot of interesting script things that, you know, made the iconic movies. And I will agree with you there that the others have 
just thinking about it, have the emotion that necessarily these don't. These still feel a little bit like pop hits. Um, Though I squelted, I just can't wait to be king uh, so much as a child. And my mother... My mother had to timidly go, baby, you can't be Simba. And I go, mom, I want to go be Simba. And she's like, baby, you can't be Simba. One, you're too old. Two, you can't be Simba. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah it's... But, sorry, you go, you go ahead oh, yeah. and keep cutting you off. No, no, go for it. I... But yeah, no, I agree with you because there is especially going back through now that the Aladdin on Broadway has put back in the cut songs that Ashman and Mencken wrote. Um, You know, there is I mean, he lives in you, which didn't make this make this score, I think, is one of the most really well thought out songs that was added for the Lion King musical. Um, and, but I, you know, proud of your boy, things like that. Um, even, even Bell's music and, and part of your world, they have a wanting that seems a little deeper than, than Simba's. Now, yeah. you know, it is also that idea. Simba is a, br- Simba's a brat. Simba's a oh, little yeah. brat. Simba's the worst. Uh, Cause he's a prince. He, he is, he is the favorited of the, of the babies. Cause there are lots of the babies. And that's something I didn't get was a child when I went, there are all of these lady lions around, but only <laughs> Mufasa and Simba. But why does Simba have to be king? And I went, oh, it's because <laughs> Surabi is the favorite. Yep. And and then I went, wait, literally, it was, I was a teenager before I went, does that make Simba and Nala siblings technically? Yes, it, yes, it does, because it's the animal kingdom. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I will, I will agree with you there of, um, that this, while I still hold out that it might be the most iconic of the scores for people, sure. that I'm not sure it is not. It has the least depth of the scores as they present in their movies, um, because Simba doesn't actually get a lot of substance until the end of the film. Because even when he's with Timon and Pumbaa, he's learned a little bit more about himself. But like, he's just kind of carrying that "Oh God, I killed my dad and had to run away from my family" thing. Um, and yeah. so his, but you know, that is also his journey. It's the same with Hamlet's journey. When you're born into the privilege, even as a lion, um, there is, you know, Scar has more at stake at one point than I think Simba does in his actions. And so, you know, which, you know, explains a lot of Scar's behavior and Scar's choices. Um, <laughs> To kill his brother, um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. but uh, huh. um, but you know it's one of those things that I will I will agree with you a thousand percent that I I don't listen to the Lion King soundtrack to like cry in my car, but I will listen to the Little Mermaid and Aladdin soundtracks to cry in my car. Yeah, a thousand most, percent, most definitely. <laughs> so you mentioned he lives in you, which yes. is. I agree. Like, that is a special piece of song. So, one thing that I was obsessed with. So, the Lion King soundtrack, the original Lion King soundtrack, was definitely the first soundtrack I had bought. I bought it years later with Space Jam. So, I bought them together. Um, Oh, wow. I mean, those are two iconic movies from the same time. So, So, what I love and what I still listen to to this day is 1995's Rhythm of the Pride Lands, which... Included all of the runoff songs from Alan Menken and Lebo M, 
which included, I think, I believe that album opened with He Lives in You. Yes. Um, and included, you know, like, very, like, African narration and lyrics to some of the, you know, classic instrumental bits from the yeah. film. Yeah. Um, which then I think, you know, lent itself very well to the, to the musical and other things, but I am obsessed with that album and everything I have to say about the original soundtrack, I take away and give nothing but love to Rhythm of the Pride Lands. I love that. I love, I, I have, I think I have a copy of Rhythm of the Pride Lands somewhere. Um, yes, Somewhere I have to, I think I have it somewhere. Um, just funny story. You said Space Jam. It did come out within two years of this. But there's a theater that is tonight and tomorrow night in my area showing Space Jam. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, shout out to Ocala being being about 20 years behind. But yeah, no, it's... Uh, well, and then they would go like Shadowland is such a beautiful song that was oh added gosh. for the musical. Yeah. Which, again, I believe also might have been on that Shadows of the Pride Land. Or Rhythm of the Pride Land. Yeah, um, a version of it was. Yep. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Shadowland so, um, and Endless Night are just like, they just give me everything I need. They're so good, which is why a lot of times I'll put on the Lion King Broadway soundtrack. Yeah. And not the movie soundtrack. Same. Because um, that, that Broadway <laughs> musical takes what they did in the movie and it amps it up to a thousand because like there is nothing like sitting in a theater watching circles of life for the first time when that when the elephant comes down the aisle right next to you mm-hmm. and it like it is just it is it is huge and again it makes sense that they then took and made it a musical and returned it to theater because its story at its base had theater roots um and so which i think was one of the that one of my issues with the new version was when they decided to expand the story a little and like pump a little bit of like me too contemporary life into it, which is important that we yeah. are living in that time. Um, and as cool as it was to have Shenzi and Nala take a bigger role, did we have to have Beyonce? Is one question. Right. Um, right. And I love the Queen B, Queen B, but she's not an actress. She's not a strong actress, which took for me a lot of that out of it. And I really, though, I did really want to hear her sing Shadowland, but I get you know whatever. Didn't cut it to yeah. get that Oscar song. Yeah, that other um, song. Yeah, <laughs> that uh, other song that didn't get an Oscar nomination. Yeah, how about that? Um, and you know, this is one of those that like. Timon and Pumbaa, you know, there was, there has been two TV series. There has been, um, the, the two sequel movies like this continues to live on and continue to tell the story of, of Simba. But is there anything, I guess, come back to it plot wise that you would like to see different that you would like to tweak or, or we, we think it should, which should change for, for today, I guess not even change for today, but just when you're looking at it from a story aspect. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna say no. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. there are the problematic bits, um, you know, with you know queer coding scar and the you know like that view of the dirty outsider minorities and the hyenas and like all that stuff we know. Um, yeah. But I, I would say just from like a narrative aspect, I I don't I don't have much to say negatively um, about this movie. I I think when I do think about this film, like, one kind of moment, which I, yeah, it's definitely my favorite moment of the film, which really just, like, embodies how well they've done with just, like, mood and feeling and timing, is, like, those few minutes that begins with 
Zazu take Nala home. Uh-huh. And ends with the kings are looking down on us. Yeah. Like, I, I think that moment just has anger, sadness, passion, like the love of a father. And it just, it's like an emotional nugget of what this movie is all about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I really don't, don't have too much negative to say plot wise. Plot wise, yeah. So let's so let's talk about that. So let's talk about Scar because, like, I last year visited Disneyland for the first time when we were watching the California Adventure nighttime show, which is called World of Color, and they project on water fountains. And right. Scar came up, and I just went, "Yes, gay icon, <laughs> yes." And the person that was standing in front of me was uh, considers themselves queer, and turned around, and they went, "What, really?" I was like, "Girl, think about it." And they went, "Yeah," and I went, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, "And it's one of those that like." We talk about this in my Little Mermaid episode a little bit of how I look back now and I go, I don't particularly mind that these characters were coded in this way, not because I felt they came from a malicious place, especially when dealing with like Ursula or Scar. I'm not sure it's malicious. Jafar, I think we could have that conversation, which we just had on our Aladdin episode. If you haven't listened to it, go back, download it now. Um, (laughs) I did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and you know but I think it's one of those like there's Jeremy Irons made so many amazing choices to Scar and I think the coding is only there one I think if he doesn't have the British accent some of that coding gets lifted away um, because I think some of it comes from Jeremy Irons is a very um, almost RP her to his natural voice anyway he has a heightened dialect in his speaking style so I think a lot of that that elevated style of Scar you know but uh, the I, I just relate you said that for years you had the the t-shirt that says I'm surrounded by idiots I did and you know it's every once in a while I'll think that in my gayest internal <laughs> monologue voice um but I think there's something Scar to me is the most relatable character of the whole movie. Uh, maybe hot take for a lot of people because yeah, he's the one down. who yeah. who Scar from the story we know. And this is based on an original. This is based on a story, I believe. Um, uh, you know, if there you know, it does take a lot of things from an anime called Kiba, um, the white lion. Oh, yes. Um, you know, that's the question of, of, you know, does Disney steal everything, uh, kind yeah. of deal. Um, but there, I believe there are some stories that are similar to this and, Something uh, which is why, like, Scar's name is actually like a Swahili for garbage or trash, um, and Scar is just his nickname. But yeah, Mufasa's, while being a loving father, is kind of a piece of shit for how he treats his brother. Now, like, while I get that that's also the structure of a, a pride of lions, there are not typically multiple males in a pride. Um, feel free to correct me on social media, reach out to us on email. If I'm <laughs> wrong, my, my lion information is probably a little outdated, but um, yeah. So like, I get why scar lives on the periphery, but also you can just tell there's so much in his life that he's always been told that he's lesser yeah. because Mufasa was the larger brother, stronger brother, firstborn brother. Um, and so you get why Scar gets to the point where he does. No, I do not uh, encourage anyone to kill a sibling. 
um, especially if you are going to inherit something, probably don't murder your your sibling. I'm just going to say that. Don't don't murder your sibling. Sing a sassy song with your your goose stepping sidekicks um, and uh, move on. Um, but yeah, uh, but I think for me, I think maybe again, it's just as a queer person, I never really saw myself in a ton of characters. And so even as a child realizing that I was different than the rest of the kids without having that language of, I am different in these ways because of these reasons, um, Scar, I got, I understood Scar, but he was also terrifying to me. He was scary. Um, also cause he was willing to do what he had to do. Um, well, what he felt he had to do. And that was one of the things I did enjoy how he was animated in the live action remake. Um, because when you're looking, when they looked more like the real lions where yeah. Scar always was a little lithe and a little smaller than Mufasa, which led to that kind of queer coding. They made him look sinewy and thin because mm-hmm. he's eating rats. And so then I went, oh, oh, yeah, he literally gets nothing because he has no one to hunt with. He has no one, which is why it would make sense that he befriends hyenas. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it is also ends up being a hodgepodge of, oh, we have a mentally disabled person, a Latinx person, a black person, and then a queer character coming up from the rear, scraping up from the bottom yeah. behind the privileged folk. Um, and Ultimately while losing. Ultimately losing. And while I definitely don't want to think it was intentional, also because Whoopi Goldberg was just a huge, like, she was a huge name. Cheech Marin is a huge name. Right. Um, Jeremy Irons was a huge name. Um, and he had done other things from Disney before that. But um, it's it's one of those when they all happen to fall that way in multiple movies in a row, you go, mm, I feel like we have a pattern here that we should yeah. probably address. <laughs> but... I, you know, I, despite the queer coding, because again, watching the new movie with, uh, Chitol, uh, Adewal as, as Scar, there was something even more malevolent, but not as interesting about him having the pure darkness of Scar versus having some of those foppish tendencies, which still made him likable. Yeah. He was just scary this uh, second time around. And you, you peg him as the villain from the beginning, even though, the odd thing they do in both of them is he doesn't hate Simba, but Simba no. is a product of the person that he hates. And Simba is the only thing in between him and um, him and the crown, even though he probably could have gone without killing Simba. It still made Simba convinced that, you know, Mufasa died trying to help him and then you know, it's 18 years before Simba takes the throne and could have easily been killed accidentally in any of those times. If he started asking too many questions, I'm sympathizing far too, (laughs) far too easily with Scar and thinking how he could have still taken the throne without driving his net. But like he could have easily killed Simba and he didn't at any point until Simba came back, um, as a threat. Um, and you know, I think Simba, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, to your point, like, I mean, I love Scar. Scar's my favorite character in the movie. Like, I have a stuffed Scar. Like, you know, he's just fascinating. And if you've had a certain experience in your life, you, like, put all these characters in a line in front of you. 
like, I look at Scar and I'm like, okay, I can connect with that. I look at mm-hmm. everyone else. I'm like, oh, a carefree lifestyle. Sorry, I haven't had that benefit to be able to live that yeah. way. Like, oh, being worshipped. Oops, I, <laughs> I haven't come across that experience just yet. Um, and and you know, there's really just like a lot to dig into. And the fact that he's you know so charismatic. And sure, there's issues around their queer coding, but at the end of the day, like villains are cool. Yeah. <laughs> um fascinating like you know all the best movies you tend to remember the villain the most Mm -hmm. um and you know back to your to your point like scar had very little um so again he had to find his own family like many of us do Mm -hmm. um but simba was an exception and i think that's kind of what separated simba from like whether it was his youth or what have you like simba unlike literally everyone else um, in those tiers of that hierarchical society would actively go out of his way to hang out and talk to his uncle. Yeah. Um, I think... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, no, and I, and I just think like that may have contributed to Scar's inability to do harm to him directly. Yeah, well, and I think it's also that idea of we're not programmed to be hateful people. We're not coded to be racist. We are not coded to be full of anger from childhood. And obviously they, they scar was around enough that like, he's been a part of Simba's life. And so Simba likes spending time with him. He, he will seek him out. Um, and Simba doesn't have the hate that the other lions have for scar purely because Mufasa is the leader and Mufasa hates scar. Like, it's, you know, it's this idea of this found family, which I actually really love that as a theme, because then Simba experiences that with Timon and Pumbaa. And I believe it's in Lion King one and a half, we see the kind of grandness of this idea of found family with the other pride of lions that live beyond the elephant graveyard. Now, Hot take, I have not seen either Lion King 2 or Lion King 1 and a half. We are getting there. <laughs> um, uh, you know, there's just with Disney Plus, there's a lot to watch through. It's and uh, like, I, I haven't gotten to Return, uh, Return of Jafar or King of Thieves yet for Aladdin either. Um, but we're getting there because they'll be done on the podcast at some point I am sure (laughs) if we keep her going that long Um, but yeah it's this idea that I think because you know for for RuPaul for good or bad always brings up this idea that is queer people um, and I to me that also includes people who are others anyone who is considered other we get the beauty of finding our own family and putting that together And that can sometimes be stronger than any blood bond, which, um, you know, I think is part of why Simba was able to come back and be stronger because he had actually learned love in non-conditional ways. But like having to eat bugs and (laughs) and do all the, you know, and live with people who are not. It's what we would then see them kind of talk about more in Zootopia, this idea that he's a predator living among the prey. Right. um, And he's. You know, they even say it with with like Nala. They're like, oh, she's not one of you're not one of them. She's one of them. Um, And that idea that they were like, oh, Simba's like us. But like there's always that fear of Simba still as being the other being the predator. 
Um, because, you know, every one of those beings have been run down by a lion or a hyena or something in their past in order to be afraid of Simba as a lion and the Nala as a lion when, when they show up. Um, I, going back, I think the only thing I would have liked to see a little more of is Rafiki. Cause I always forget of how little Rafiki <laughs> is in the movie. Um, yeah. cause you would think that, I mean, granted, whatever mysticism Rafiki has, like you would think that they would have known that Simba was still, I don't know. That's, that's me digging way too deep into that story, I guess. <laughs> and then putting some magical realism on it. But I think another, one of the things that I think we take away from this and why, it's important is that idea of building the other family. So even if you have your blood family, maybe they're never going to be the ones that support you in the way, or they're going to want you to do things that aren't necessarily going to be the best for you. And so your chosen family is always maybe going to be stronger and more supportive of you than your given family is. And, you know, that's one of the things I always like about, Disney movies is that idea of chosen family ends up being present through a lot of them while family is always existent slash Disney loves killing parents like <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. You have no choice Ooh. but to find your family. Disney slaughtered it's, them. Disney's going to kill them. So you better, find yeah, you better make own. some friends. <laughs> That's why I felt so bad for Anna and frozen. Cause I was like, damn, this girl can't even get out of the, she can't even get out of the castle. How's she going to find, I mean, I guess she's got to be friends with the five maids they have left. I guess here we go. Poor thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those that I think it's scars journey is so interesting. And if you look at different points and how that story went, none of this would have happened. There are different points along the way of where you go, maybe if this had been different, this wouldn't have happened. Or maybe if that had happened, it wouldn't, you know, would have been different. Um, there, there, are, and this has some of the, it, and it's a relatively, like you said, it's actually a relatively small cast um, of main characters when, I mean, because you've got, yeah, I mean, Saravi is included as a main character, but she only speaks like three times. Yeah, right. and the same with Rafiki, where you you've got, I mean, one, two, one, two, three, four, <laughs> five, six, seven, eight, nine. You've got nine plus the three hyenas. Right. So, um, which God bless Jim Cummings as the voice of Ed. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's I mean, and, and uh, Nala's mother has a, a, a name and has a voice actress listed. But like she's got again, she's got one line. Right. So, you know, this is kind of a boys club that is, uh, you know, one complaint of this is it is a bit of a boys club, which I guess is why in the new version they made um, Shenzi. Uh, the leader of the hyenas and they weren't necessarily best friends with Scar, which I actually did kind of appreciate. Yeah. I like um, that. Which alienated Char Scar a little bit more. And then this idea that like Nala then went up against Shinzi, I did really like, um, but it feels like one of those old action movies where the women have to fight, but they can only fight the other women. Um, right. You know, so because yeah. like I would have I would have loved to seen Shenzi go toe to toe with Simba in in you know, in that the new version or even in the animated. Um, but it is I think my only other complaint is it's not the most diverse voice, voice acting cast. cast. Yeah. 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 Um, which, again, you know, we were still at that point where people were going, well, it's animated. It doesn't matter. And I go, well, 
then no little black kids know that they can be voice actors. No Asian American kids know that they can be voice actors. They, you know, that's the thing is when you're still seeing um, an all white cast, you know, with the exception of James Earl Jones, who is the voice, his voice is his brand. Um, you know, it's it's him and um, him and Whoopi Goldberg and Cheech Marin are the only people of color on on um, on on the movie. Oh, that's a lie. Madge Sinclair uh, was the voice of yeah. uh, Sarabi as well. Um, there are a few, but like you know, it's still one of those things where it goes, okay, this could be you know, this could have been better, which is why I did appreciate the live action remake for deciding to to diversify that casting in a way that I do think is important. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I was, I was talking to some friends because we, we watched it, um, a few nights ago. We watched them both back to back and yeah, I mean like that, that cast is awesome. Like so many, so many things are correct about it. Um, and you know, when I think about the remake and just, you know, having watched it a couple days ago, it's just unfortunate everything else um i think that it's interesting because watching it it feels like they are purposefully putting in lines from the original and then purposefully adding new ones and it just creates this weird like patchwork with no flow or timing um because they were trying to be two things at once yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I think they were trying to shoehorn too much new things, too many new things in um, to to kind of flip up, kind of flip around what was happening before and like why they need to retell the story. And they did it a lot. You know, as far as the, the remakes go, they did it the least with Lion King, I think. Um, but... Yeah, it's still one of those things where I go, why were these changes necessary? Why, like, why yeah. did this need to happen? Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot. It's, it's so much. But it's lived, lived on, and I feel like this is one of those Disney movies that no matter what happens to the company is going to live on forever. Oh, like, yeah. just... Forever, because it every time there's an anniversary, it gets a new home video release. Um, you know, it's it is always present in the parks. There, you know, it is it will forever exist. Um, though I didn't realize that while they were making this, Pocahontas was being made at the same time, which it, you know it came out a year later that I knew. But actually, they put a lot more of animating um, resources into Pocahontas than they did this, and they really did this with kind of a bare bones animation yeah. uh, team, which which it baffles me because they're both really beautiful <laughs> in different ways. But then you watch Pocahontas and we go, was this tonally correct even in 1995? Was, th- <laughs> yeah, was no this way. really? No way. Really? You know, and I grew up near Jamestown. And so, like, we were watching it. My mother was like, we need to leave. We are leaving. And I was like, okay, all right. She's like, that is not the story. And I was like, okay, all right, ma. Yeah. Um, I mean, we I, didn't see it. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, you know, another ingredient as to why. Lion King is just, you know, this, like, cultural foundation. Um, I think the Pocahontas piece may have a lot to do with it. Um, I think, you know, they're working on these two movies at once. Like, they put a bunch of new guys on the Lion King. Um, They put people who are, like, either, uh, I'm too new to 
be on like the definite hit that Pocahontas is going to be, or I really want to work on animals. Um, yep. And that sort of created the situation in which Pocahontas became like this like production touched by all the like this is the one that was going to make it, which gave Lion King that freedom to truly be even in the Disney Renaissance a passion project. Yeah, like it was which, it was given the freedom to take these risks and become this weird thing that doesn't fit the Disney mold. No, which is so funny to think about. There's a great quote from Don Hahn, uh, which was the Lion King was considered a little movie because we were going to take some huge risks. The pitch of a story <laughs> where a lion cub gets framed for murder by his uncle set to music by Elton John. People were like, what are you kidding me? Good <laughs> luck with that. But for some reason, the people who ended up on the movie were highly passionate and motivated and were what made this movie work, which yeah. I think is amazing. Yeah. I mean, you can... You can tell, like, a lot of love went into this. Um, <laughs> and and something else I, I just thought of, this is random, feel free to, to cut it, but uh, um, so when I was younger, um, in my Disney-obsessed cloud, I drew pictures of every Disney movie um, and had it taped on my wall. Um, and I was, and I got to the Lion King one, and it was kind of just like smaller than the rest because I wanted to fit in more characters because yeah. I loved it so much. And this, a friend of my stepmom came and she's like, Tristan, you got to fix that Lion King one. It's not as good as the other ones. And I was like, oh, and she goes, and, and she says this and I'll never forget. And she goes, she's like, this is the closest thing we'll ever get to a black Disney movie. And so Ooh. it has to look good. And it was funny because that immediately made me... So my granddad is a barber. And that mm-hmm. immediately made me think of something else happening around the same time. When, like, all the guys in the barber shop, like, whenever Bill Clinton would pop up and, and say something, they'd all be like, this is the closest thing to a black president we'll ever have. And I kind of just, like, looked at the, looked at the dates of that. And I think it's so interesting because you look at 2009, and I think I'm right on this, where... You've got Obama coming in hot in January and then the Princess and the Frog later that year. Yep. And I'm just I was like literally just going to look that up, but yeah, I'm right? glad you already yeah. had it up. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I'm like, this is like one of those ridiculous, beautiful moments that really does, you know, speak to the importance of, you know, those conversations that we had to have back then. Yeah. A- across the board to, to get to where we are right now. Um, and so yeah. I, th- I think for anyone out there, because like in academia, I feel like we have these questions all the time for people who don't see anything outside of their bubble as needing to be separate from the norm. And like, this is why we continue to say that like representation matters and why, when you can do better, you should do better, especially because, like, um, I work in theater, and so theater casting and things, it's like, sure, you don't have to have a black Lori in Oklahoma, but if she's the best one, why don't you do it? Because, like, some little girl's going to see her and go, oh, wow, I can be a musical theater. Or, like, I saw um, when I went to see Frozen in L- um, L.A. at Disneyland, the Elsa that I saw at that particular performance was African-American and the little girl behind me was black and was freaking out because Elsa was black and she just, again, cause kids, she'd seen the movie. And so Elsa was one thing to her. And so then to see someone that looked like her performing in that role, I think is important for 
people to remember when every time you turn on media or open up media or read media, the people specifically look like you or they are going out of the way to make sure they look like you. You have to remember that for every character that looks like you, for, you know, 75% of the rest of the world, it does not look like them. It does not represent them. And I think that's so... One, it's so important now, and I'm glad that we're at a point where we can call it out, but I think it's so interesting that you you give that specific viewpoint from being a child during this because you probably hadn't thought about that much as, like, a kid, but, like, that that, that was that person in your life's story was... is so... Oh, it's it's so interesting. And then even then, that like, Princess and the Frog, well, good, it's still kind of the, the only, like, black Disney representation we've gotten so far um, for her own princess movie. And, like, while it's great, it's she's still a frog for most of the movie, and, you know, she's a poor working class. There are these subtly coded things that are still what we expect to see a black character to be that necessarily isn't you know, a thing or that like, while Moana is amazing, we expect to see her as this like wild Polynesian princess outside of modern life. There are these things that while they are amazing, it's the first time we're seeing them. And it's so modern that it's like, cool, we've got it now, but let's then let's next step. That's like, that's that's well, that's why Black Panther was so important for so many people. I feel like was because it was so unapologetically everything that it was. Um, yeah, so I think it's one of those things where I think we can still keep pushing this and keep going further and why a lot of these things are important. And I think Lin-Manuel working with Disney now is going to be a really important thing. And honestly, ultimately, Beyonce doing this, Disney has agreed to work with her and produce of this kind of coalition of films that she brings to them that are created by uh, queer women, women of color, people of color. And so it's going to continue to tell stories that they might not have thought about telling before. Um, because when you look at the people that are running Disney, even though they're doing delightful things, there's still a lot of white people that are relatively conservative with a lot of money. So there's still going to be some For disconnect sure. in the stories that I think they want to tell. Um, yeah. I was watching, a, well, I saw Onward yesterday <gasps> and I saw it as well. Know, I was looking at the, Oh my, yeah, we can plenty to say about that one. Ooh. Um, yeah, so, like, the, the Soul trailer was at the beginning, yes. right? And I think that's that's probably going to have the Princess and the Frog curse as well, where, you know, you've got, like, you know, your Pixar's finally got, like, this black-led movie, um, it seems, but just based on that trailer, it seems as though we may be running into a situation in which they don't get to exist in that body for very long. Right, yeah, they, they're going to kill them um, off real early, I think, yeah. Yeah, and turn into a little cute soul ghost. Um, yeah, and it's funny, like, it, you know, it's one of those things where you, you, you know, like, even as a person, you know, like, as, as a queer person, as a person of color, like, a lot of times you don't realize how important it is to see yourself mm -hmm. until that moment that you do. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I was kind of going through life in my 30s, like, a few years ago, just like, all right, well, the world's like this, but... I know that and I'm just going to do my best in this world that I am in. I've learned what I had to learn. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then cut to me 30 minutes after moonlight, just like crying on the sidewalk outside of a bar and not fully understanding why. <sighs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's, especially as queer people still, we have had a really hard time in the stories because, like, in the 90s, trying to come out of the AIDS crisis, queer film, quote-unquote, boomed um, as this idea of, like, independently made movies because... It's what we needed as a community. But again, then that ended up being mostly hot, mostly white people, um, male, you know, specifically. And so this idea that even as queer people or as, as others, that we still are just now starting to see ourselves reflected on on screen and in stories and not in contrived ways that are just to have us be sassy or be, you know, the black or gay or the black gay best friend or, you know, these things right. that where we can lead our own story in a way that I think is really important. And it shouldn't have taken till when was it, like 2016? It shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't have taken yeah. till, you know, that season. And then to still have everybody go, oh, well, you know, La La Land's going to win because, you know, you know, a mediocre musical <laughs> about boring white people should always win, you know. Uh, so, yeah, it's this is all part of a deeply more difficult and layered question that people need to continue having and that people with like, especially for my people out there who are white that have friends who are different than you who seem to get frustrated because you don't seem to understand or you don't un seem to understand this. It's, it's think about what happens if you have to go through every day of your life and everything around you doesn't reflect you or you don't get to see yourselves in marketing campaigns or in clothing ads or in film or in television. Like nothing reflects you and your story more importantly. Cause like for years there, you know, there always, there's always that joke that there's the one sassy black girl in every musical, but like, <laughs> you know, written from a white aspect or a white point of view, or she's the only black girl in a Midwestern town, you know, they're, they're never going to be written with authenticity because of, you know, be just because of how things are and how tropes worked and it's not right. And I'm glad that we're getting to a point where we're starting to solve this, but I think we need to continue to go on, especially after this season with like, there was a conversation about Parasite and everything this year of like the fact that we're still having that conversation and white people are going, I'm uncomfortable with reading subtitles. And I was like, well, what do you think the rest of the world has had to do for years? You gross, gross people. Um, or even talking about this, the um, Disney movies are translated into between 28 and 36 languages now. And it wasn't until recently that Lion King was, was released in an African dialect. And so yeah, Zulu, Zulu right? and it's only Zulu and Arabic are the only two and it's just Lion King. So Arabic is the only African language technically that um, that has a movie released in it and get think about, you know, and it's that just goes to show that they don't think about how many people are actually consuming media in in on that continent. Like, it's just so it's it's one of those things that still will continue to baffle me. Um, because, you know, they're going to be a large, you know, everyone is a large consumer of media now because of how widespread everything is. So I don't like, you know, the fact that like there were a thousand languages that Frozen was translated into, but like none of them were for an African nation. Like, you know, it's one of those things they go, come on, come on. 
yeah. where where was my where yeah. you can afford it you can do it I was it. like where was my black Elsa on the Oscars come on y'all <laughs> um, but that even you know that even is talking about like people who are from South Africa who are you know don't speak English or whatnot which you know it's mostly English in South Africa but you know it's it's even in those areas that are largely white or largely largely not black in Africa that are still I'm just going why are none of these people getting it in there you know translated in their language we have the resources we have the money just do it yep but maybe that just maybe I don't know what I'm talking about but <laughs> uh well Tristan any other thoughts with the Lion King any anything else uh let me see I mean I I feel like I I don't I feel like we like have to talk just a little bit more about Kimba yeah I I think that you know the the white lion is sort of like the the elephant in yeah. the Lion King room. I just think it's it's one of those things where it's fascinating because Tezuka, who created this character, was heavily influenced by Bambi. Yeah, um, was a great lover of Disney and and met Walt, I believe, and then. You know, he dies around the same time production begins on The Lion King, which is also based on Bambi. So it's kind of like we're all part of the same, like, loving, magical, animal-based yep. family. And there are some, plot-wise, it's quite different. Um, you know, like, I, I think the white lion focuses on humans a lot, and obviously there are none in The Lion King. Um, but moment to moment visuals there are a lot of a lot of really glaring obvious parallels um and so i think that you know like i love lion king i always will but you know it even like hurts me a little bit um when they're just like you know this is our first completely original idea and what's kimba yeah (laughs) never heard of it um and i think there's like a matthew broderick quote right where he was like oh i thought that i was voicing an adult kimba Yep. Well, especially um, because in early shot, in early screenshots of early presentation reels of Lion King, Simba's white. He is bright white. Yeah, which is not like a choice you randomly make. Nope. <laughs> nope. And like, <laughs> yeah, when Scar originally only had one eye, which also the yeah. villain Claw in in Kimba had, like. You know, there is a there is a hornbill bird. There are hyena sidekicks. There are three specifically. Yeah. You know, it's it's, it's all there. Yeah, it's all. there's a baboon that's wise but silly. Like it's you know, it's just there. Are these who and you know, it's and it's again, it's uh, it's just people who want um. They just want Disney to acknowledge, like, what they were inspired by. Like, that's all they want. Right. They just that's want it. them to thank, um, uh, which, like, Disney now will have to do because, like, people are calling them out on it. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, so I'm not going to... You can't hide from the internet. Nope, apparently, and I'm not going to spoil Onward for anybody, but there's that thing that's really prevalent that's a funny joke that um, that they apparently were not going to pay Wizards of the Coast for the use of that thing uh, in Onward. Uh, and then they wow. uh, Wizards of the Coast got wise, and so Pixar and Disney went, okay, I guess, can we use it? Slash, well, thank you, slash, here's some monies. Um, and again, I'm not going to ruin that for anybody, but anybody that knows D and D knows what's <laughs> in the coast. You're going to know exactly what I'm talking about because it comes up a couple times and it's very funny. It's super funny for me as a D and D player. Um, 
I piddled myself a little bit, but yeah, yeah. they're just those things that I was like, come on, <laughs> come on, Disney, what's the matter? It's like when you copy your friend's homework and yeah. you get caught. Um, you know, it's... <sighs> yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, they're sticking to it, and I, I think they always will, yeah. um, because that was the Disney renaissance, and it must remain as clean as possible. Yep. Oh, um, of course, of course, uh, of course. <laughs> I think, okay, so I feel like this is just something that needs to be said because I kind of love it. I love that, uh, so Tim Rice had choices for who his, like, composer would be. Yeah. Right? And his first choice, obviously, was Alan Menken. Um, didn't work out. Um, and then his third choice was Elton John, which was, you know, obviously did work out. But I, I'm almost 100% sure that the second choice was ABBA. And I just kind of want to slip into the alternate dimension in which Abba was the one who worked on The Lion King. Yeah. And what that world oh, would be like. Oh, the Benny and Bjorn. Yeah, Benny and Bjorn from Abba. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That would have been wild. It would have been like chess, the animated feature. I, I don't... <laughs> that, yeah, like I don't want to live in that reality. I just want to peek into it. Oh yeah, oh, but I want to. I want to spend a couple hours there. I gotta be honest. Yeah, because that's the same world where Starlight <laughs> Express is still running on Broadway. Um, Definitely, <laughs> what a world. Yeah, just different. Oh, that's that is wild. I did not know that. I, that is. Woof! I don't. Holy crap! I do not know. Could you imagine? Ooh. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I love Samira Techno Trash, um, but yeah, that would have been such a different, uh, not good, not, not good, not good, not good, Just dif- yeah, not different good. I feel like this would have, not good way. I feel like with a, I feel like with a, uh, an ABBA score, this would have flopped like the Rescuers Down Under did. I feel like this would have, oh yeah, this would have been, ooh. Holy crap. <laughs> I don't even know what that would have... Like, I can't even begin to imagine... I just imagine it sounding a lot like chess. The... Very staccato, very stagnant, very electric. Yeah. Could you... I could just, like, see all those, like... Oh, the, all those all those legs of those African animals just kicking and stepping. <laughs> 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 Uh, and Scar would have had a big gay disco number. Okay, maybe I like this even more. Oh yeah, M- maybe I'm yeah. liking this. The whole even movie more would now. look like "Can't Wait to Be King." It would. Be- oh God, man, <laughs> that's so. Yeah. I- Man, so if any if any any of the dreamers are out there listening, and you would love to write us a sample of some sixteen bar cuts of what the um, what the uh. Uh, what the ABBA Lion King would have been like, because really it would have been maybe please. the same lyrics, but please, 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 I will feature yeah. you on the show. We will, we will put you on yeah. YouTube. I want to hear. You'll be my personal hero. Oh yes. yeah. I want to hear what your version of the ABBA Lion King would have sounded like. Oh my God. Oh God. Oh. I just need to, I'm going to sit in silence for a second. Just thinking about <laughs> Every lion's playing the game, but nobody's warthogs are the same. And nobody's on nobody's <laughs> side. Oh, God. Um, if you all don't know what we're talking about, the guys that are from ABBA obviously wrote Mamma Mia. 
Um, but they have two other musicals called Chess and Christina. Uh, um, one is about a Ukrainian woman and one is about a, the chess world championships. Uh, yes, I know. Really interesting musical theater. There. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, go listen to it. Chess is actually kind of a bop. Yeah, check it out. I, I do really like chess, actually. But I think it works best uh, staged as a concert, not as a, a fully fleshed out musical. Um, I believe they have one yeah. other one or there's another one coming. I don't know. But um, ugh, I just I can't imagine what that would. Oh, well, I just, I feel, I feel like that's, oh, that's, it. that's a note <laughs> to end on that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, man, maybe, you know what? Maybe I'll play the episode out with a little bit of nobody's side. Cause like, well, we'll pay for those rights. Cause sh- shit, that's so funny. Uh, well, Tristan, <laughs> thank you so much. If the yeah, thank if, you. If the other dreamers like you want to find you on the internet, where can they find you? Oh my goodness, I am so hard to find. I am bad at the internet, but hey, I'm at, at Tristan Bailey anywhere. Um, I may be speaking in some of them sometimes. Um, TristanBailey.com, and and that's that's me. Um, and if you're interested in some weird dreamy. Uh, teen fantasy, um, then I've written a, two books of a trilogy called Reverie. Um, two of them are out. The third one's coming out later this year. And where can they find so, those? Fun. Oh, they're both on Amazon. Yeah, you just search my name and then Reverie. Um, that's the quickest way to get to it. And we'll have all that information up on the Facebook and on the website as well. Well, Tristan, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I I hope I did you and the King of the Jungle justice. You did us very proud. Video games are a unique medium. They can tell stories. Immerse us in strange, fantastic worlds. Blur the very boundaries of our reality. But at the end of the day, video games are fun. Whatever fun is to you. I'm Jeff Moonen. And I am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. And on Fun and Games, we talk about the history, trends, and community of video games. It's a celebration of all the games we play and all the fun we find within them. And there's so many more games out there. So we hope you'll share in that conversation with us. Fun and Games podcast with Matt and Jeff. Find us on certpov.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And happy gaming. as always for listening to the Dole Up Dreams podcast. June is Pride Month, but because of COVID-19, Pride festivals and marches around the country have been canceled. So here at Dole Up and Dreams, it's Pride Summer. <laughs> On our Teespring, we have some really fun Pride items that we are selling through the end of August, and all proceeds will go to the Alley Forney Center in New York, as well as the Center for Transgender Equality. We are introducing, in collaboration with Limerick Oddities, on Etsy bag clips, an exclusive trading pin, and stickers for Dole Whip and Dreams podcast. And 100% of sales from our Dole Whip Pride bag clip will go to the Ultra the Okra Project, which is a coalition helping trans people of color. The links for both of these can be found on our social media. A big thank you to Certain POV Media for having us on your network and the support of all the amazing creative people there. As always, you can find us across social media on Facebook at Dole Whip and Dreams Podcast, on Instagram at Dole Whip and Dreams, on Twitter at Dole Whip Podcast, and even on TikTok at Natty Line. 
I want to thank Firefly, Lex, Sasha, Jared, Case, Katie, Jesse, Rob, Heather, and all our amazing patrons over at Patreon. We have some huge upcoming projects, and the Dole Whip and Dreams family is growing. We'll soon be offering a movie musical podcast, a cult or cringeworthy movie podcast, a limited run series about the Tudor wives, as well as we will be taking our deep dive into the true crime genre. So many exciting things coming, so make sure you check out our patron, Patreon and subscribe for only $2 or more a month. And this will get you exclusive new content early, video content of the reopening of Disney World, as well as discount codes and free merchandise exclusive for our patrons. A huge thank you to David White, our audio editor, Angela Gwynn, our research assistant, and Brett Eagleton from the Let's Rewatch podcast for the music in today's episode. Now, until next time, may your days be filled with Dole Whip and dreams. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.